I'm Dr. Tony Rivera. I serve as the Director of Educational Assessment at Marion University, and welcome to this episode of Data Talk. Whether you are staff, faculty, or a student, you know that there can be so much fatigue when it comes to surveys, evaluations, etc. You are asked to complete so many things, but often never hear back about the findings and how findings are used on campus. Data Talk seeks to highlight the people on campus involved in assessment, the people who read your responses to the various assessments and use the data to inform curricular and co-curricular improvements. Our guest today is Dr. Adriana Ernstberger. Adriana is the Assistant Dean for the School of Global and Cultural Studies in the College of Arts and Sciences and an Assistant Professor of History. Adriana earned her Bachelor's in History and Political Science with a minor in Women's Studies from the University of Alaska Anchorage. She earned her Master's in Global History with a Graduate Certificate in Women's Studies and her PhD in history, both from Purdue University. Adriana Ernstberger, welcome to Data Talk. Thank you, Tony. I'm excited to be here. Before we, we get into the data, I just have a couple of questions to, to help me and help the listeners just learn more about you. I wanted to kind of go back to your, your undergraduate experience. How did you end up at University of Alaska Anchorage and what was kind of that, that experience like? Yeah, yep, flipped a coin. So I wanted to go to Maine because they have good lobster, and the University of Maine has an exceptional gender studies and history program. Okay. My ex-husband wanted to go to Hawaii because that's where he grew up, and they had a solid history program as well. And the University of Anchorage had the same types of programming that I was looking for, and both of us thought it would be an adventure. So we flipped a coin, and three weeks later, we went to Anchorage. Because you're, you're originally from California, right? Yes, I was born in okay. Monterey. So okay. I was born in Monterey. I was a military brat. Dad was in the, in the Army. So oh. I lived in Colorado, Wyoming, Florida, Georgia, Texas. And I spent most of my life in Colorado Springs, Colorado, near Fort Carson. And overall, your undergraduate experience was? Exceptional. Alaska is phenomenal. As our students who just came back from Model United Nations can attest, I got to send several students and our newest faculty member in global studies, Dr. Bueller, to the campus. And she worked with my undergraduate mentor, Kimberly Pace. And they uh, won, by the way, and competed in Model United Nations there. Anchorage is magical. Uh, any, any place you live that you can have a picnic on a glacier at 2 in the morning in the middle of summer is pretty wow. spectacular. The only thing that I did not love about it was how much time it takes to get down to the lower 48 and how much money it costs to get there. Other than that, it was an exceptional experience that I will always be grateful for. And the yeah. university was exactly what I needed. I was married. I was a non-traditional student at 23. I wanted to graduate quickly, and I was very focused and knew exactly what I wanted to do, which was go to grad school. So I did my four-year degree in two years, attending two <sighs> universities at the same time, 28 credit semesters. I do not recommend this life choice. But I did get the degree done and then got um, an amazing package to Purdue, which is how I got to Indianapolis, or wow. Indiana at least. I got to, to Indiana with Purdue. I got to Indianapolis because I got married. When you were a master's student at Purdue, you served as, I believe, the first graduate advisor for the Student Club Feminist Action Coalition for today. Yes, is I did. True? Fact. And it seems like this group, I mean, looking at you know their, their impact, it seems like they were really instrumental in getting the, the Center for Advocacy, Response, and Education established on mm -hmm. the Purdue campus. I'm wondering if, if you can just kind of tell us more about your experience advising that club and, and just what you learned from serving as a graduate advisor. Yeah, and I have to give all credit to the students. The students and some of the junior faculty there really led this. So when I started at my master's degree, um, because I had experience teaching already, I initially started teaching in women's studies, which I was in love with. 
and kind of de facto became the advisor of the group. And FACT had been a group at UAA. And so I brought it to Purdue with a group of students who were really excited about some of the issues that were happening on campus and really concerned about that Purdue did not have a rape center, sexual assault prevention program that was broadly approachable. And this was all happening during the time where, you know, we've got stuff going on in Steubenville. We've got issues, you know, this is before, you know, Brock Turner at Stanford. But it is that that feeling in the air. And there were several major cases that were very publicized at the time. And so the students came together and said, we want to make a change. I asked them what. They said this is what they wanted to do. And I went, "Woo, Mitch Daniels is coming in as our president. All right, let's keep it real. And, and we did it. And it was good old-fashioned grassroots activism. I taught women's studies, and then I taught a global feminisms course on global social movements broadly. And what was really exciting for me was watching the students take the lessons and take the experience and information they had learned about how women and feminist groups and men and queer communities around the world have successfully agitated for change. And three of the people who were really central to creating the center and to leaving behind some of the advocacy work long after I graduated and, and moved went with us on the first women's studies trip to Uganda. So in 2013, we took the first trip to the first women's studies study abroad that Purdue had ever offered. And in 2014, we took a second group, so nine students each time. And of those two groups, a grand total of five of them were involved with FACT. And so they not only studied how do feminists, how do social justice activists work in complicated political structures, work in religious parameters? How do you hold in your head two really conflicting thoughts? And how do you align, you know, conservative politic or religious ideal with contemporary injustices and still hold both in their head? And they did that in the Uganda. They worked at um, 17 different NGOs, non-governmental organizations in Uganda. They met with the Ministry of Gender. Uganda was the first country in Africa to add gender equality to their constitution, something the United States, by the way, does not have, the only global North country not to have that in our constitution. And they took that information, they absorbed it, and they came home and they rocked and changed the world. So it was really exciting seeing them do it. And it really changed the paradigm as well, which was exciting for me from a nerdy pedagogical standpoint of challenging the narrative of white feminists or Western feminists traveling to other parts of the world to teach these poor women about feminism. And instead, this was a group of privileged white, predominantly white, female and male students who went to go learn how to be an activist from Ugandan and East African women. Yeah, and I, I wanted to ask you about that. So, so you said, from the moment I heard my professor say, I learned to be a feminist from Ugandan women, I knew that I wanted to understand the history of women's and, and gender studies in the, in, the, in the country. You already touched on it, but I mean, can you share some more like key learning experience from your, I mean, three years of field work in Uganda? Or? Yeah, so yeah. Um, I went in 2012 with Dr. Alicia Decker, who is currently the chair of the Women and Gender Studies program at Penn State shout out. She was my dissertation chair, and she had done her master's degree at Makerere University. Makerere is one of the oldest universities in East Africa, and they started the School of Gender, Women's and Gender Studies. It is the oldest women and gender studies program on the continent, and it is one of only two schools of women and gender study in the world. And this came out of the 1985 conference in Nairobi, women's conference, uh, the UN conference in Nairobi, and then again was, you know, really facilitated through in 98 in Beijing, but lots of different things culminated to have the program start. And so she did her master's degree there and then came to Purdue. And that's where I met her at the beginning of my Ph.D. And I do. I remember sitting in her African history grad class and it was one of the first things she said to us. And it 
it boggled my brain. And as someone who had done critical race theory, my master's was on women and slavery in East Africa and the Caribbean. I felt very comfortable having explored my own sense of privilege and identity. And she said that. And the first thought I went to is, what? This chick from Michigan State and Emory University who got her PhD from Emory, you went to Africa? You went to Uganda to figure out how to be a feminist? And that second in my head, I went, oh, you have work to do. It was that mirror of privilege and, and that white feminist thing that sneaks into us, those, those um, implicit bias that we don't realize. And as I, I remember writing the note, I still have the notebook. I wrote the note down and said, you need to go learn some stuff before you teach some stuff. And that's kind of started that, that role. So we applied for several grants. We got them. And then in 2012, I went with her and we set up the study abroad. And then 2013 and 2014, I did... We led the students, and I also stayed for about a month later and conducted interviews for my dissertation, which was on originally going to be on the history of women and gender studies in Uganda, but I applied for a grant and freakishly got it, $30,000 grant. And so instead, it expanded to a 19-country comparative analysis of women and gender studies in the global south. And yeah, fun, fundamentally shifted my understanding of the history of feminism, but more important than that, on the history of the academy. I started wanting to write a history about feminist movements, and I ended up writing a history about the academic discipline of women and gender studies and data and bias and the interweaving challenges of religion and politics and custom and economics that all played into the, the experience of support for or destruction of women and gender studies programs. So it was it was it absolutely changed the trajectory of my um, career. It shifted me from an Africanist to what I, I now would consider myself as a transnational feminist historian. What I'm really interested in are the relationships and the conversations that happen across borders. States are made up lines that are organized by nations and based on economics and territory. And so what do people do when they cross those fictive lines and how do we reframe the world we live in? And that's, that's the exciting stuff. It's the things I'm working on now. It informs my role in the Global Studies Program. And I'm co-editing a journal for Women's Studies Quarterly that will come out in early spring 24 with TJ, Dr. T.J. Boisseau, who is also a historian. She's an Americanist, but has done extensive work on global feminism. And it's on pandemonium is, this, is the topic. And so it's looking at what is the impact of the last 10 years been on our discipline, because the discipline of women and gender studies is under attack in ways that it hasn't been really since the 80s. And, and it's data. It's proving, actually proving to us that data didn't work for us. As we played the data game, which was show that students are interested, show that we can have the programs, show that we can grow enrollment and your programs will be safe. And that didn't prove true. So we're we're reaching out to scholars around the world to get their impacts and to get a kind of state of the field. Where's the discipline at right now? So, I mean, for any, I mean, hopefully we have some graduate students listening who are currently pursuing their their doctorate. I mean, I, w- I was always told a good dissertation is a done dissertation. Amen. But, 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 I mean, to travel to all these countries and do everything that you did, I mean, that had to, the amount of time and energy that, that went into that, I mean, it's just so admirable that, that you did that. I mean, it's just. Thanks. It was, it was, it was amazing. I mean, it's also why it took me seven years to finish my PhD instead of the four that would have been reasonable. But yeah, I'm, I'm an avid traveler. I didn't get my passport till I was 23, but I've made it for lost time. So I'm at with the recent trip to Guatemala with the stu- with the study abroad group over spring break, I think I'm at 73 countries. Wow. But that grant definitely helped. 19. Wow. Checked off 19 along the way. I, I presented at a conference in Saskatoon when I was a doc student in Bloomington. And mm-hmm. I, I walked back in there when I got back with just this swagger, like mm-hmm. I was some world traveler. And here you are going to all these places. 
It it mm. is it isn't a contest. It's a journey. <laughs> okay, so I I wanted to ask about last question in 2020. So your faculty at at Marion, you were named Advisor of the Year. Mm. Uh, Dr. Liz Osika, Assistant Provost for Teaching and Learning, said about you, she exemplifies the heart and soul of a Marion faculty member uh, where the relationship with her students is held at the most important, as the most important part of her job. And I'm just curious because, you know, I know that you and and all faculty here and at at any institution, I mean, there's just so much on your plate, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's teaching and research and service, advising. And so I'm just, I'm just interested in like understanding how do you, how do you make time for students? And then also like as the assistant dean, Mm. you know, how do you encourage others to prioritize students and, you know, help give them that time? Excellent question. Thank you. And uh, that award is, and still is probably one of the most significant and personally touching awards I've gotten, um, largely because it's entirely voted on by the students and based on their nominations and whatnot. And so that that meant a lot to me. I think the honest answer is I know this is going to shock you and all of our listeners. I am going to drop the mic here, bring out a really big secret from the underground that no one knows. Professors do not go into it for the money. So when you are engaging with people who are doing the kind of profession that we're doing, you typically are dealing with people who have some type of, of talent they're wanting to share. And sometimes that is heavy scholarship. Sometimes it is lab research. Sometimes it's excellent teaching. Sometimes it's the ability to do advancement and fundraising or amazing administrative skills, which includes every level of administration from entry level all the way up to presidents and CEOs. There's a million ways in which students are served. And I, the way I have always stayed grounded from my graduate teaching till now is the question I ask myself about all major decisions is, are the students served? Is this going to support students? And support students doesn't always mean it's going to be things they like. But does this serve the students? That question being my moral compass has always served me well, sometimes exhaustedly, but always served me well. And as I'm thinking about how I shape a course, what classes I offer, what curriculum we develop, what programming, what grants we want to ask for, what accommodations I'll make, is this going to support students or not? And as I've stepped into this administrative role, I have added to that, does this support faculty? Because if the students are supported and the faculty is supported, the institution thrives. I don't have to worry about, is this good for the institution? I really don't. Because if it's good for students, it will be good for the institution. There's nothing that is good for students that hurts the institution. It just doesn't work that way. And so it is a lot. And we are a small liberal arts school, which means that everyone here, I think I'd been here for three days and someone said, you're not really a Marion employee until you have at least two job titles. And on my fourth day, I got my second one. I became director of the gender studies program. So there is a truth to that. But it's also the thing I think that keeps us all sane. And what I try to do, both as an advisor in the classroom and and working with faculty now in this new role, is try to support all people's paths. I want everyone on the bus. I want everyone moving forward. I don't want us all needing going to the same destination. And so I, I don't have a lot of ego involved in who wins an argument per se. I want everyone to walk away feeling like they are supported. I hate the word compromise. It just means two people both didn't get what they want. But how can we creatively think of ways to make sure everyone gets what they want? And maybe it's not all that they wanted, but it's something they can hold on to. And so working with students is my great pleasure and my great joy. I just got back from a trip to Guatemala that I did not want to go on. I was exhausted. I have recently adopted twins, my God babies, inherited twins. And it's been a lot of adjustment this year. Uh, I had two really personal losses. So it's been a rough year. New job, 
new realities, new role. And the last thing I had patience and time to do was to go on a trip to Guatemala. And anyone who knows me and is in my inner circle had said, oh my gosh, you're going. Even when I took the wrong passport, that's a different story for a different day. It's, I'm, so, I'm, I'm just so glad. This is why you need to have your own personal board of trustees that you call and talk to to tell you what to do even when you can't trust yourself because it was absolutely what I needed. It was invigorating, exciting, thrilling, exhausting, at times horrifying. It was all the things a study abroad should be, transformative and fulfilling. And I watched these 12 students, each in their own way, take what they were seeing, experiencing, learning, and apply it in their brains and souls and spirits in various different ways. And we've been back, I mean, not even a full week now. Two people have decided to go on to grad school. One of them's already started oh, applying. Wow. One of them is working with me on a grant. And the relationships we built there are going to lead to graduate programming correlations. We're going to be bringing two women we met down there to come up here for the Global Studies Speakers Series next year and do an art installation with us and talk about um, education in the arts in Guatemala and what the challenges are. There's a seminary there that we're hoping to look at formation. The students accidentally got to march in a demonstration. So we were there on International Women's Day, March 8th, and most countries in the world actually celebrate it. We were there for March 8th, and I thought we were going to be attending kind of a lecture. No, we attended the national demonstration in Guatemala City. So it is all of the major feminist and women's organizations in the country gather and they do a march. They march towards Congress. They march on the main streets. They go towards Congress and they are celebrating and challenging and arguing. This particular group was that we were with, Sector de Mujeres, was specifically really angry and challenging. In the last two years, there was an awful accident that could have been prevented where 56 young girls were killed in a, what was supposed to be a safe house, in a safe house fire. And their little sisters were there and the students got to hear, and it was translated for them, what they, what they were saying. They got to hear the chants and the marches. My Spanish is awful, but, you know, the, one of the major chants was alerta, alerta, so alert, alert. Uh, Le luche feminista. So the feminist battle is here, basically. Yeah. And bring the feminist battle to Central America. And they were holding signs. And, and it was very interesting because not every student who went would identify as a feminist. Yeah. Not every student was female. Not every student would identify as heterosexual or in a gender binary. We had a wide range of students. I had several several students who are extremely conservative, um, devout Catholics with more conservative-leaning politics. And I had at least one student who's an atheist and uh, is about as left as you can get and makes me look a little conservative. We had a plethora, and all 12 of them were on fire because they're standing in this march. They're watching, walking, and what they're seeing is the police are smiling. They're seeing, which is not always the case, that are around, and that they're seeing that they're in one group. You see a trans rights group, and right next to them is a group of theologians and women advocating for women's roles in theology, and that everyone was getting along. No yeah. one was arguing and fighting. These are two groups that often don't agree with each other. And the idea was what is better for women as a whole is better for all women. And so they're holding signs that are super radical, like women deserve right to an education. Women should own land indigenous women's rights. And watching them engage with that, it is the culmination of the reason I went to grad school. It's, we don't need another book. I'm going to write one. Don't worry. If, if, if you know, President Elsner is listening, I promise I'll do the research. <laughs> but we don't need another book on, on how to save the world. We need people to actually save the world. And we need people to make a difference. We need people to care. We need people to care about sexual assault and voter infringement and race-based violence and food in, in, insecurity and water insecurity. We need people to actually care and then take that care to translate into whatever their activism is. And for some people, that will be prayer. 
For some people, that is going to be dollars. For some people, that's going to be teaching. For some people, that's going to be getting on the ground with their pickets and their signs. All of them are needed and have value. And what was fabulous was watching the students. One of my students particularly was really anxious, was really nervous about it. And one of the comments that she made to me was, you know, how are the ways that I can support this kind of work at home in different ways? Because this really isn't me. And so we talked about, you see all these people around who are selling things and handing out water and doing these other things. They're supporting and they don't want to be in the march. They don't want their pictures on the news. They don't, you know, there's a consequence for this type of politic. And so instead, what are they doing? They're feeding people. They're clothing people. They're handing out posters. They're picking up the trash behind people. There are all kinds of ways that we can support a change in the world. And there isn't a value that's greater or less than. And so one of my kids is going to go to law school and wants to change policy. One kid wants to actually get into politics and another wants to teach. I've always said my greatest activism comes in the classroom. And anyone who says that the classroom isn't a political space, I think, hasn't been enough classrooms personally. We bring our politics. We bring our thoughts. And hopefully the thing at Marion that I love is I don't have to hide the fact that God and spirit and faith are part of that discussion for me and that I can create spaces for my students to have those conversations and also to hold them accountable to what does that mean? It, you know, if you are a Catholic, if you are a Christian, what does it mean to hold space in this world of conflicting injustices? And this trip was an example of that. So I don't know at all if I've answered your question, but no, there's yeah, my long-winded answer. Oh, I appreciate it. It's, it's awesome to just learn more about the, the powerful experiences you had it, through your education and then the ones that, you know, you're creating for, for students here at, at Marion. I'm going to jump into the data that we're we're talking about. So for, for this episode, we're going to be changing it up just a little bit. So for the last three episodes, we've been discussing findings from the National Survey of Student Engagement, NESSIE. But today, we will be discussing findings from the Sexual Assault Campus Climate Surveys administered by the Higher Education Data Sharing Consortium. So these surveys were administered to undergraduate students, graduate students, faculty, and staff at Marion during the fall 2022 semester. These findings are, you know, really hot off the presses. We have not received comparison reports yet from from heads. Just very recently received the qualitative data. So today, Adriana and I are, are just going to be discussing internal analysis of the the raw quantitative data that that we received in January. The the first question I have for you, Adriana, just looking at this the, these results, is just kind of your thoughts on how we educate the the campus and you know what might be some some opportunities opportunities there so the the findings show that around 75% of faculty and staff indicated they received information or education about what sexual assault is and how to recognize it but less than half of undergraduate students and graduate students said the same you know what do you what do you think the opportunities are for for us to to educate students? You know, I've been really, really blessed with the types of people I've gotten to work with. And so I promise this will be not a long answer. I will try. Sarah Blana Murder, whose title I always forget, but it's some amazing grand poomba of student services, ironically was in the very first class I ever taught. So she was a student at IUPUI at the first women's studies course I ever taught. And the first semester I started at Marion, I walked down the hall and it was her first day at work. And so we had not stayed in contact, and I'd written a a grad rec for her for um, graduate school. And so this full circle moment of a student I had known in that role, now I'm knowing as a peer and a colleague. And she's really leading a a project on campus for us to figure out sexual assault prevention. 
And what do we look at that? And so I'm advising her on her um, dissertation right now. And so none of this is my data or my answers per se. It's much more kind of working with her and learning and, and, and understanding more. The stat of it of the administrators, teachers, graduate students, higher level people having significantly more awareness of what this is does not surprise me. I would argue that's probably in line with many other surveys we would see. And the less than 50% for students, I think that I think the way we improve it, I have all kinds of reasons why I think that it could be there, but I think that the way that we improve it is a is really leaning into prevention, leading into preventative education versus in 2023 students, we, I don't believe we're having 18-year-old kids coming in who don't know what sexual assault is. They're surrounded by it. Sexual violence, gender-based violence, race-based violence, these are things that they see on TV and in film and in music. It's in their video games. They are the most tech-savvy group we've ever seen if they've played uh, whatever that's, that awful racing game is, Grand Theft Auto. Then they have seen that you get paid more money if you not only beat the prostitute or that if you not only have sex with the prostitute, but you beat her. So they know what this is. I think what what we really, I think the responses we're getting speak more to what do I do about it? How do I stop it? Have I done it? And wanting to divorce themselves from those realities. And so I think one of the ways that we improve those numbers is that it is an integrated from a prevention standpoint from the very beginning. It is integrated not just in their new student orientations and then in their data, but that it is woven into our general, general education curriculum, which doesn't have to make it dark and dank and awful. I mean, our Franciscan values lay the groundwork for here real well. Dignity the individual, if we actually practice this, we wouldn't have a problem. Reconciliation is needed to move beyond these spaces. Peace and justice allow us to think of a world of equity. And we know that sexual assault is not about sex or sexual desire. It's about power and violence. So the data doesn't surprise me. I think that the data has lots of room for improvement, but I think the improvement has to be less on the concept of simply, have you heard this? And we're thinking about how are we trying to tell them about these things and what are we doing? Are we just telling them or are we showing them? Are we integrating? Are we giving them solutions? If we're just presenting a problem, this is a group of kids who've just come out of a pandemic. They don't need another crisis. They need to know what do I do to fix it. Another finding that that stood out to me, so 61% of undergraduate students either agreed or strongly agreed with the statement, Marion University can do more to protect students from harm. And, you know, I, I'm just curious in your work as a, as a faculty member and working with faculty members as, as an assistant dean, you know, what do you think faculty and, and staff can, can do to, you know, better, better protect students? Can I, can I ask a follow-up question? When the framework of that question, did it just say do harm or was it specifically framed sexual-based assault or sexual-based harm? The statement was Marion University can do more to protect students from harm. And then it was five response options, just that their level of agreement with okay. that statement. So I'm also curious about that broader statement of harm. Again, I, I'm not trying to disavow that the numbers I would expect would be sure. high if it was specifically saying to prevent sexual assault. I think we would still see numbers. But I'm curious if that question was not prevent from harm, but specifically stated sexual-based violence or gender-based violence, what those answers would look like. I think harm speaks to general safety. And I think, you know, just thinking back to the last Nessie survey I looked looked at, and even more significantly than that, because you know how much I love quantitative data, (laughs) um, my qualitative experience working with students as an advisor, working with students in clubs, working with Jennifer Plumlee and the amazing work that she does with the Nitro's Pantry um, and various spaces is I think that harm in this space can mean a lot of things. It can be the very traditional sexual-based violence, date rape, those types of things. It also can mean food insecurity. It can also mean religious intolerance. It could mean race-based intolerance. 
It could mean lack of economic access to certain spaces or concerns about, especially with 61% prevent from harm. I'm also curious how much that has to do with the COVID. And, and you know, you've got groups of students who are con- who are very concerned that having the vaccine is very, very dangerous and groups of students who are very upset we didn't mandate the vaccine. So I think that harm piece is lots of stuff. So if I was okay. answering it really broadly about what could we do to better protect our students, I think it is one of the strengths of Marion is I do truly believe that every person in a senior leadership role, every person in a faculty role, every person in a staff role, I have never met someone on this campus that I could say honestly does not care about the students. Right. We all bleed blue, blue and gold, but we be blue and gold because it's for the kids. And while I may not vote the same as everybody on this campus, we're, we're all pretty in sync with this. And so I think it is less, this isn't a case of not caring. This isn't a case of institutional indifference. It is a case of how do we target in on biggest concerns? And I think that one of the things we need to do is we need to be asking students, what are, what is, what are you feeling most insecure about? What, what harm are you most worried about? So I know it's more surveys, but ask them, what are they most worried about? Yeah. What is in, you know, what, where is safety issues? So I know one of the things that we've talked about is that several students have talked about feeling very uncomfortable downstairs in Clare Hall, this hallway right here with the light. So they talked about it. They brought a, a concern. We've looked at budget and Evan Hawkins has been amazing. And we're going to increase the lighting in that space. So it's not as dark. I, I mean, would that have ever occurred to me? I'm a historian, guys. I don't care about electricity. Yeah. It would never have occurred to me. But a student who had to do laundry down here or had to come down here for a class in a space I had never been expressed a thing. And so I think it's listening to the students telling us what, what it is they need. Do they need more food? Do they need class hours at different times? Do they need additional interfaith spaces? Do they need spaces where they can be as, as an incredibly focused, traditional, you know, sacred music? And that that needs to be okay too. What do they need to feel secure and continued training? And, and I loathe to say it out loud because I do not have time for another meeting. The reality is we are all racist. We are all sexist. We all carry our isms with us. There is no data that challenges that. And anybody who finds data that challenges that, I would love to see it. And I'm pretty sure I'll be able to debunk it. And this is not about wokeism. This isn't about right or left. This is about the fact that we grow up in the realities that we live. And so we understand the world we live in based on those things. Just because I have implicit bias and that I am raised in a particular world, which is racist and sexist and classist, it doesn't mean that I am actively denigrating or actively disparaging or discriminating against people of color. But I live in in this world. And so that means I have to continually do work to unpack that and to challenge it, as do all individuals. Racism is not exclusive to, you know, little white girls from California. How do I unpack that? Sexism is not exclusively an issue about women and men. It's about men and women and non-binary and all the other pieces in the, in the puzzle. The most sexist person I've ever worked for in my entire life was a woman. So I think that how we protect students from harm is we ask questions about what it is they're afraid of. We actually listen to them. And then we work with them to have them help us find solutions. Teach them, you know, the, the, my, my, my Sunday school teacher is going to be mad because I don't remember where it's from. But, you know, teach the fish, fish for a day, blah, blah, blah. Well, before you teach them how to fish, they have to understand what the fish are, where the fish live, what t- best time to go. you got to teach all the stuff. So yeah. talk, ask, and then give them tools to find solutions themselves and empower them to do it, which means empower them to fail. 
throw it at the wall, see what sticks, and then be there to help them when they need to do next. And then the other side of it from the staff and faculty side is that we have to keep doing the work to make sure we're not bringing any more toxicity to the space. We have to do the implicit bias trainings. We have to read the, the, the latest data and the latest conversations. We need to bring people to campus. We need to be engaged in these difficult conversations. Adam Setmeyer does an exceptional job doing what I think is probably one of the most thankless positions of having to in one breath hold and prove we're Catholic enough and then in another breath hold that we're not too Catholic. But I think he does an exceptional job at this. And those are hard conversations. And instead of not wanting to have them, let's have them. And I don't mean that among students either. I also mean that among peers and creating that space. And so, you know, doing the itinerariums, talking with the sisters. I mean, you want to find a a badass group. Oh, I said I wouldn't swear. A bad butt group of women who have faith focused, social justice, and transformative thinking, I mean, that's the, the sisters. Yeah. And they care a lot about student harm. So I, I know it sounds like I've gone kind of in a circle, but it, it, it's, it's two-pronged, and everybody's got to do the work, and everybody's got to empower each other to figure out how we reduce harm, which also includes not just towards students, but towards each other, right? So yeah. gossip mongering, um, territorial wars, it, th- there isn't a place for it. We either, we either lift each other up as a whole or we sink as a group. And and that's true across the board. And so the more we can do to learn about each other and to learn what is harming each other, the better those stats will get. I really appreciate you just kind of like unpacking that that statement and, and what that could mean because you know, you mentioned kind of other surveys or collecting more data and we administered a survey this this past year and the findings at both the Indianapolis and Ancilla campuses when it came to students worried about when they're going to eat next and students worried about where they're going to sleep that night, I think really caught the the numbers were a lot higher than than people would think. And Mm -hmm. I mean, we're so fortunate. I mean, you've talked about some of the the great faculty and staff here at Marion. And it's it's like, we're so fortunate to, to have those people on campus that are so student-centered that when you share that information, it's not they get on the defensive, which I've experienced at other institutions. You know, they get defensive and they just take it and say, oh, we got to get on this. This is this is an issue, you know, and it's really, yeah, I'm just really proud to be part of this community. Well, and I'm so glad you used that example, and I agree, because I remember when you brought that data. I remember yeah. I was at the group when that when I was first reading it, and, and I, I did ask the first question of, tell me how the question was framed, all the all the, the, the <laughs> data science I wanted behind it as a scholar. But the takeaway was, I don't care why, how, or when my students are hungry, yeah. and my students don't know where they're going to sleep tonight, and what yeah. does that mean? And what I, I, I cannot echo what you've said enough, and this isn't just a, a yay Marion thing. We're an institution. We're a business in all the ways that 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 higher ed has to be to function. But we are also mission driven in a way other schools aren't. We are different. Our administrators are different. And I challenge them. I challenge people to look at other presidents, look at other CEOs and COOs, look at the initiatives universities are signing off on, look at other Catholic universities and really pay attention to what are we leaning our weight into? Because as you said, it wasn't, oh, well, there must be reasons or people need to work harder or pull yourself up by the bootstraps. It was, how do we feed our kids? And that's the right answer. That's a Christ-like answer. That's the the Franciscan answer. And and I I agree. I saw that at all levels in all circles and trying to adapt to these things. Because I think the reason it was so shocking to lots of us, I, I won't speak for anybody else, myself, I had to sit there and go, oh, wait, this makes sense. 
we are a leading university for social mobility. The president has talked about that that stat in the U.S. News and World Reports. First colleges, I can't remember what the number is, but we're 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 shooting up the ladder for this. We bring in students and support them at a rate no one else does. Right. So we give you know forty million dollars in scholarships, yet our endowment only covers four or five million of that. So that money gets made up somewhere. But the other flip side of that is that that means students who could not normally afford a Marion University price tag are here. We give a ton of scholarships for the tuition, where we need to find more resources, find more community partners, find more grants, think really intentional about student work potentially, is housing. I know a lot of our students, especially undocumented students, really struggle because there are very, very few housing scholarships. And the food-based piece. If If you're not on housing, you're not on a meal plan usually. You can, but not usually. And so what does that look like? We've paid you enough to make sure we've supported you to be at this campus, but you're here full time. You're probably not working full time. What does that look like? And I know there's a lot of people smarter than I am who are working really hard on this, whether it be coming out of case with Ruth Rogers and Jennifer Plumley. And, and, and I'm using all these names mainly because the students involved in these things aren't my kids. My students are the history and the global studies students on the whole. So those are the ones I know, right? So Sarah Getman you know, wants to individually save the world. Brock Worrell wants to individually save the world. And so they volunteer and they're doing things and they've got Sondam programs and a million things. But the administrative pieces here are also looking to those, to people around us to figure out how, how do we do this? Do we need to have more, you know, I mean, think 60s level activism. Do we need more group potlucks? Do, yeah. as silly as it sounds, bringing back the luau. So a President Elsner announced that we'll do the graduation luau again. We're going to feed anyone who comes. Yeah. Like, you know, they're trite and small answers, and I'm not an economist, and anyone who knows me well knows the math is not my strong suit, hence the irony of talking about data. But I think it's that we need to bring all kinds of different minds together to think about how we how we fulfill this and to acknowledge that we've done really well with funding one thing. So how do we help support this other piece? Because yeah. a student who's hungry isn't going to learn really well. And I'm, I'm curious. I know we're, we're running out of time. So just kind of my last question for you. Like, I mean, we've, we've really talked, you know, really big picture. But I'm, I'm just curious in your specific classrooms and your your interactions with students. I mean, how, what do you do to create that safe and, and welcoming environment? You know, whether maybe something that you put in syllabi Mm -hmm. or, you know, just something where, where you just can open those lines of communication and help students be comfortable disclosing this information about. Such a great question and such a, a layered question. I mean, I guess, so I'll talk about what I do in the classroom, but I will say, I think one of the biggest issues is being available out of the classroom, is having a campus presence, being around. I I have, since my first semester, I make a point to make sure several times a semester I get a coffee and I go sit in alumni hall when I have no meetings. It's harder now, but when I have no meetings, I never make it more than 15 minutes without someone coming up and sitting down and asking a question or talking. And so it is creating the space and making yourself available. Not all students are going to be comfortable going to office hours. Not all students are going to be comfortable emailing you and saying, hey, I want to talk. And so it's attending the events. It's going to the football games. It's, and we all know how much I love sports. Go Knights. It's simply being available, sitting at the fountain on a really nice day. During the summer, my favorite thing to do is to bring my dog and my reclining uh, lawn chair, and I go sit in front of the Francis Colonnade near Allison and buy my favorite tree, and I bring a couple books, and I email out to all my advisees and say, hey, I'm here if you want to come chat. And sometimes I have no one and I get some good reading done. And sometimes I have 10 students who come and we have some incredibly nerdy conversation about whatever book we were just reading. But it creates space that they start to see you as a person. And they start to see that you're showing up when you're not paid, in air quotes there, which then makes them feel like maybe you're more invested. 
So that's my, my, my first bigger space. I think the other thing in the class, in, in the classroom, I don't have any great formula. I don't think I do anything groundbreaking or different I, or original. I, I try to be who I am. I try to be real. I use my same moral compass that I try to use in all spaces, which, you know, I like to think is point, no, pointed north, but who knows, depending on the day. I, I tell the truth. I tell the, I tell the truth when I can't tell the truth, then I say I can't answer that. I talk about my own stories, my own life. If I'm talking about sexual assault, I talk about um, being a sexual assault survivor. That is a really challenging conversation for me, but I tell the truth. If we're going to talk about complicated things, and I've got my, my opa, that's a German for grandpa. My opa taught me when I was very young, he had said, you know, don't ever ask someone to do something you won't do for yourself. Those silly little things that live in your head, right? Uh, who knows what it was I was trying to get out of doing. But don't ever ask someone to do something you're not willing to do yourself. And I really do try to model that, whether it be with my faculty and staff, my students, my spouse, partners, my kids. And that means be vulnerable, tell the truth, take a licking. And, and keep on ticking. Like, so I also create space in my classes where students get to disagree. They do not get to disagree to the point of harming others. Yeah. So if you want to talk, be a Holocaust denier in my class, I'm going to shut you down real fast because that can cause harm to others. You want to come to my office and talk about it all day long. You know, I have had some of the most fascinatingly transformative conversations with people who I would describe as and who self-describe as blatantly racist. It is not that you have to think like me. It is that you have to be willing to have a conversation. So my extremely conservative students get A's and my extremely liberal students fail and vice versa because I don't care what your politics is. I care that you do the work. I need you to show me how you think. And so I also play devil advocate for them. I make them read bad things. I make them read things that aren't well written or well argued. And I have them read things that are poorly written, poorly argued that, that they'll really agree with. And then I show them how they shouldn't agree with this. And so doing all those things, it lets them start to realize that everyone's going to trip up. Everyone's going to change their mind. And we do a lot of conversations about holding two concepts in our head at the same time. And because I show them who I am, I have found that students are much more willing to show me who they are. And I think the irony is, you know, I am a liberal, pro progressive feminist. That's who my a scholar activist. That is my identity. And I have feminist tattooed on my ankle. And I teach at a private Catholic Franciscan institution, and I've never felt more at home in my life. It is bizarre to me, but it's because there's space to engage with all the sides of that um, and all the, all the pieces of that and that God and spirit and soul aren't left out of the conversation. And so I make that available to students too. And I'm honest with them with when I'm frustrated and then I allow them to be frustrated, including with me. And my experience has been, I've been teaching for what, 12 years now. And this is my fifth year at Marion, my fifth year at Marion. I've never worked with students more willing to challenge me and more willing to do the work to unpack how they were thinking as well. And I think it's because of the unique environment we have here. So I, I don't have any brilliant advice for people other than walk the walk, talk the talk, and, and, and be real. Don't present everything as cherries. And, and if you're going to ask students to share, make sure you're sharing. That would be my advice. Great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Those are, those are all the questions for, for today, but we're going to discuss this, these surveys uh, more, just like we, we did three episodes on, on Nessie results. We're going to do a couple episodes on the uh, Higher Education Data Sharing Consortium Sexual Assault uh, surveys, so, so keep your eye out for, for those. And Adriana, I really appreciate you making time to talk with me. You're one of my favorite colleagues. Aww. And yeah. 
Thank you so much. I really appreciate being here. And um, for everyone listening, remember all forms of activism. Taking a survey is, can be a form of activism yes. if you yes. tell the truth. So tell the truth. Take the surveys. You don't have to carry a picket sign. But if you like to, talk to the students who went to Pocomoke.